I'm so grateful that you found the show and I'm even more grateful that you chose to try out this episode because I genuinely think this episode is pretty awesome. Not that um, objective or anything like that. This episode was so good that we just couldn't stop talking and we wound up turning it into a double episode, part one and part two, all on the same topic. What we focused on in this episode is all about the performing arts. Now, I know performing arts is a general term and it encompasses a whole lot. And that's what's so awesome about it, because there's so many variations of performing arts that we can talk about it. And we can have five episodes and we still probably wouldn't cover half of it. There's so much nuance, whether the performance is on stage or on screen, whether it's creating music or whether it's singing music or whether it's acting or whether it's writing. There's so much in the performance, in the arts that is so rich and so deep that we could talk about through a mental health perspective. And there's so much that we can learn from that experience. Anyone who considers themselves a creative, their journey is so unique. Everyone's path, the ups and downs, the twists and turns, the creating, the disappointments, the adulation, the accomplishment is all unique to everybody. And I think there's so much that we can all learn from it, even if we're not in the performing arts world. Now for today, we're fortunate to have a co-host who is very much embedded in that world, has a ton of experience on many different levels, both from a performance perspective, from behind the scenes, creative perspective, composing, so many different areas where he has experience in this performing arts world. And also extra bonus is that he's very candid about things and he's transparent, which is awesome. And I really appreciated it. I hope you're gonna appreciate it to the same degree that I'm appreciating it because I think there's so much that we can learn from each other. So enjoy. Thank you for supporting us. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mental Filter, where we have the opportunity to talk to lots of interesting people about interesting topics all through the lens of mental health. I have really been looking forward to this episode for a long time. As you heard in the introduction, this all has to do with the experience of being in performing arts. And when we think of performing arts, we're not just talking about the professional level. But we are fortunate enough to have someone who has done it on the professional level, and we will hear from him in a moment. To remind you, if you don't know already, my name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker. I own and run a specialized psychotherapy practice a bit north of Baltimore. It's called CBT Baltimore. And as you know already, we volunteer this, take some time to share content that hopefully is meaningful to you. We encourage you to support us by rating, reviewing, sharing all that good stuff on the podcast and just even just listening. So we appreciate you. As always, I like to have my co-hosts introduce themselves because they know themselves the best. So without further ado, Evan, can you please let everyone listening know who you are? And we'll jump right in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thanks for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. It's gonna be fun. My name is Evan J. Newman. I have a long history in the performing arts. I started off as a child actor, did some Broadway shows. And then in my adult years, I spent some time music directing national tours. I was on tour with Green Day's American Idiot. I was the associate music director on Cinderella and Mamma Mia. 
but I'm also still acting. In 2015, I was on an episode of Law & Order SVU, and recently I played Frankie Valley in Jersey Boys for the Norwegian Bliss, on the Norwegian Bliss for the Norwegian Cruise Lines. And I also perform with a Carol King tribute group called Carol's Kings. Very cool. So really diverse, eclectic experience, which I'm sure everyone is really curious about. We're going to try to frame it, again, through the lens of the experience, but also along the way, plotting along the way, where mental health plays a role, mental health plays a role everywhere we go. So really anecdotal question here is, do you remember a time before you were in the business? Not much, because I... I was bitten by the bug very early. I was five years old. So I saw Les Mis my, with my family and just fell in love with theater and said, I'm going to do that. And that sort of became my driving force. So I have some memories from before that time, but not many. It's always been who I am. I can tell you working professionally, personally with people that it's a real blessing to actually have this awareness, this is who I am. Did you have that when you were a little kid? Not necessarily in that intellectual capacity, but more of just, this is what I want to do. This looks like fun. It seems great. And then I loved when I was doing it. I will say there was a time when I thought I was done. Around 12 years old, I was switching schools. And in hindsight, I realized it's because I was tired of being an outsider among my peers and feeling separated from them because I was still in public school while I was doing the work on Broadway and on tour, but I thought I was done with it, that that part of my life had passed, and I thought maybe I'd be a, a politician or a rabbi or a lawyer or something like that. And then I came back to theater pretty quickly. I mean, it's perfect, perfect segue. Acting, performing, the rabbinate, and politics, I guess that all goes hand in hand. It's all a little bit of the, of the same thing. I can't even say two sides of the same coin, because what are there, four sides there already? But yeah, it's they're all within the same realm of lifestyle, I suppose. But yeah, it's interesting to think back to it, knowing how self-assured I was as a kid. Even when I quit, they had wanted me to go to Toronto for a little bit to do Les Mis there with the original Jean Valjean. And I was like, no, I'm done. And that was it. Like the no second guessing, no, no greater philosophical questions of who am I or what is my identity? Just, no, I'm done. Which actually touches on, it's interesting that things change as to what our motivation or what draws us to something throughout our development. So you mentioned, I saw it and, oh, wow, that's a lot of fun. So at a certain age, it would be my motivation to get involved in something is that it's fun. It's enjoyable. And then as someone gets older, it might be, I'm going to get something specific, a tangible out of it. It might be just a paycheck or it might be notoriety or be in the public eye and be famous, whatever it is. So Besides for fun, I'm curious what else, as far as you can remember, what else drew you to it? And then over time, how did that change as far as what draws you to doing this? I think the first thing was just that I identified with that version of storytelling. And of course, this is all in hindsight. I couldn't have had the, the wherewithal to know this as a five-year-old kid. But my parents raised me and, and my brother on theater, on musical theater cast albums. So I think seeing this grand spectacle of a show, and the way that my parents tell the story is that people, when they walked in, questioned them bringing a five-year-old and then commented to them afterward how I was just so enthralled and quiet and like my mouth was agape the whole time. I think I just, more so than just being fun, which it was, I think I fell in love with the form. 
and, and that way of storytelling similar to the way I think that I identified with my rabbi. I had a fantastic rabbi who was an excellent storyteller and, and really wonderful at taking the stories in the Torah and the Talmud and interpreting them for a modern mind. And so I think it all became about storytelling and playing these parts and living out these lives that I never could. And that's what I know now as an adult. Obviously, again, as a kid, it was less thought out than that. But I think that's what, at the root of it for me, it's always been is telling stories and reaching people through these stories and being a part of something bigger. There's a great sense of community that happens when you work on a show. And everyone in their career will work on horrible shows that are just no good, will work on masterpieces and a lot in between. But every time you form this community, this family, this idea of moving your story forward as a group rather than an individual. And, and I think that more than anything else, especially now, is why I find it my home, why I find it who I am. That's, yeah, that's awesome. Again, a big blessing, I think. I really like the aspect of the storytelling. And there's so many values within that that you touched on of what draws you to doing something. So you have the storytelling, you have the sharing, you have perhaps even education, you have community, which touches on something that I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. And I certainly see that as a human observer, which is my profession. And how many of us get caught up in the actual black and white concrete experience and we want it to be a certain type of experience versus beyond the content, the experience. What I mean to say is that there are so many experiences that I've had personally and professionally that it's not really important necessarily what you're doing, maybe it's who you're doing it with. And that's a very enjoyable experience. A lot of times it really doesn't make a difference what actually you're doing. You're going out for a drink, you're going bowling, you're doing whatever it is. But if you're with the right crowd, you're with the right people and it's the right atmosphere, then you have an amazing time. Same thing with, it could be professionally. It, it just if you're in the right circumstances, it can be a trap to fall into this very narrow, I need this to look a certain way. And the results need to be a certain form, only then could I have a good experience with it. And if I'm understanding you correctly, of course that's important. You want a great product, but just as important, if not even more important, is what the environment is like, who you're with, and that creates a really enjoyable experience. Did I get that right? Absolutely. And, and one of the things that we talked about in school, because I, I also did graduate from Tisch School of the Arts, I went to CAP 21, one of the things that we talked about in acting class was finding the things both to love about the work and to love about your scene partners. So you don't fall in love with your scene partner because the script says so. You have to find the specific thing. Is it the way they speak? Is it that freckle on the side of their left eye? Is it like that kind of specificity as opposed to just the script says so? And I think in doing that, when you form those bonds, you create a more relatable piece no matter what, because suddenly you're having human interactions instead of this is what the script says. And I think that just bleeds into the rehearsal room and the dressing room off of the stage. 
and you really were able to mind read there a little bit because that's where my mind was going. You mentioned a couple minutes ago that acting or performing, I should say, provides an opportunity for someone to really take on a role, to put on a hat, a persona that, quote unquote, in real life, they would never have that opportunity because either it's not appropriate <laughs> or they'll or it's just like circumstances will never afford that opportunity in a way it's almost feels a little bit like fantasy like i get to play a certain role so what comes to mind let's say if i play the nemesis or the enemy or the person who has a rage problem, then I get to express rage in a quote unquote appropriate, acceptable manner. Whereas in real life, I can't just go off the rails and smash things and, and yell at people. So it's almost like this fantasy of being able to do that. So that's really cool in a way. And I wonder if there is a double-edged sword to that, which is what you started to touch on. In order to actually do it, you really have to find something genuine there. You have to find something real with your co-actor, with the character. You have to really tap into it. Otherwise, people pick up on that, that it's not genuine. So my long-winded question is that, is there this double-edged sword because you have to embody the character and because you actually have to find something real then does it become ever difficult to disengage from that and is there a challenge to fully immersing and then extracting fully immersing extracting and those lines get blurred along the way it can be challenging there are a lot of different acting methods one of them is notorious the method where you do just lose yourself in the character and you're in the body and the mind of the character for the entire time that if it's film that you're shooting, if it's a show the entire time that you're backstage on stage. For me, that doesn't work for others, it may. But either way, yeah, especially when you're dealing with someone with heightened emotions or a villain who rages and breaks things. And I think you always have to take some time after the show to just breathe, meditate if you meditate, stretch if you stretch whatever your thing is watch some youtube videos if that's what it is just take some time to bring yourself back to who you are because it is possible to lose yourself in those and, and it is possible to walk away from a show and unknowingly take characteristics from the character that you played into your real life and sometimes that's a great thing and, and sometimes it can be dangerous it, it, it's a challenge but if you're aware that's in your future i think you can Headed off at the pass. You can do the things that you need to do to maintain your mental state while still presenting a believable, relatable, fully fleshed out character. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I'm not going to be fishing for any sensational, salacious stories, but without sharing too many details, have you actually observed this? Have you seen this, unfortunately, where it has had that cost play out? You know, I actually haven't, at least not to my knowledge. But you, know, you hear the stories, and I wish I could remember any offhand, but you hear the stories of Heath Ledger even playing uh, the Joker in, in The Dark Knight, it, that infamous, he's infamous for that character, but also what it did to his mental state, I think is a perfect example. I've never seen it personally, but it's stories like that always come to mind. So to piggyback off of that, maybe it's an unfair question because it's a very general question. So performing arts is, is very broad, very vague. You can have acting and you, there's music, there's stage, there, there's all sorts of different forms, modalities. But do you find that it draws a certain, it's unfair to say this, a certain type of person, maybe you've been asked this before. There's a lot of 
great values that maybe drive someone to the performing arts and what they get out of it. You mentioned community and fun and just being able to share and storytell and all that. Is there certain characteristics in a person or certain type of people that are drawn to it? And the reason why I thought of that was because like you just mentioned Heath Ledger, which is both fantastical and amazing to see him play that character and it also gives you pause of, whoa, how is he able to play this character so well? And I wonder if certain people are drawn to the that world and also certain people are drawn to certain characters to play because maybe that taps into something that's within them. I might be being too psychoanalytical here, but it's just what I'm thinking. No, I think I think that can be part of it. And then you also have the people who get into it because they just want fame and fortune and look at all the dresses that people get gifted or all the brilliant suits and ties that people get gifted or that piece of art. There are people who are in it for that. There are people who can tap into something within themselves that's been quieted. And I think you'll hear a lot more about the celebrities that buy into the lifestyle as opposed to the art. You don't hear a lot about the people who go and do their work and then they go home and play with their kids or if they don't have kids, do whatever they do. I don't have kids. I play piano. I play video games. I practice work out. Everybody has their thing, but you don't hear about the ones who don't go crazy or who aren't going out partying every night. So I think it's, it's a couple things. It does attract the personality that may elicit a sort of danger from diving too far into those characters. I think in my experience, the majority of us feel things very strongly and deeply, and we may process them differently. In my real life, I'm a pretty stoic person, and it angers a lot of my ex-girlfriends. But I do feel things very deeply, and the stage, the storytelling, gives me an opportunity to work out those emotions, to exercise those muscles, because they're important. So I think a lot of us just feel things deeply and look for a way to express them healthily. I love that. So I actually appreciate it when the rare times when you do hear about some sort of performer who like, they don't live in Hollywood, they live in like Wyoming and they choose to really remain grounded. Anytime I ever have the chance to meet someone who's in some sort of a public eye, it's a fascinating subject to me because I always want to just understand, assuming that they are grounded, what have they figured out that keeps them grounded? So I'll ask you the same question, like you, no matter who I would meet, whether it's a big time actor or whether it's a politician or whether it's just someone who's, whether it's Dr. Fauci, whoever it is, what have you figured out that helps keep you grounded? To be honest, for me, a lot of it is, and don't tell casting directors this, a lot of it is a lack of confidence in myself. I am always looking for how I can do better, how I can be better, as opposed to acknowledging, and I'm working on it. It's always a project, but acknowledging what I did as opposed to what I can do better. It's a struggle. For me, part of it comes from growing up in the industry where in my formative years, I was used to being told no all the time. No, you're not right for this. No, you're not right for that. Part of it comes from the fact that some of the people I was in the industry with are huge now, Jesse Eisenberg. I never worked with Anna Kendrick, but she was performing, earning her Tony nomination two blocks away when I was doing Les Mis. And she's huge now. Leah Michelle blew up. Part of that also keeps me grounded, knowing where my peers were or where my peers are now, as opposed to my career is still figuring itself out. I think that also helps me keep grounded. It's, it's mostly about maintaining perspective. I hope to one day be as big as they are and be able to do the kind of work that they do. And I also hope that when that day comes, I won't forget where I came from. 
And I don't think they have either. I'm not saying that. I think it's important to know where you came from. I have this photo from college because for Showcase, I did this scene from a show called Assassins. And it's a song unworthy of your love where he is obsessed with Jodie Foster from from what is it, Taxi Driver? I never remember because there are two movies and I never, never remember which one's which. But it's a photo, it's a still of her from that we used as a prop. And I kept it. And sometimes people ask me, like, this is creepy that you have this. I'm like, yes, I have it because I don't want to forget where I came from. It's one of those things where it's, you have to remember your roots. And I think that no matter where you go and no matter what you do will keep you true to who you are. That's awesome. You hear that, everybody? Take heed. Doesn't apply just to performing arts. I think this applies to any form of success. It's a dance because success doesn't mean that someone should undermine their success and someone should downplay their success. Someone should have pride and feel good about my work for this and I earned this and I got up again and again. I'm worthy of this success 100%. At the same time, remembering where you came from. It's a dance because you also mentioned that it's inevitable in most professions, but certainly this profession. And I recently did an episode with someone who was uh, formerly in the modeling world it's also quite common is you have to deal with rejection after rejection. And so it's a dance between, I don't want my head to blow up and get too high in myself, but you also don't want to get stuck in rejection after rejection. In dealing with social anxiety, which is something that I deal a lot with, there's, I want to say it's Robert Ellis. I don't know if I'm blanking on him right now. His way to get over rejection was where he literally, he went to a conference and his goal was... I want to get like a hundred rejections from women. And so he went trying to get numbers or whatever it is. Maybe back then, it, you know, it wasn't called digits and he did it and he, he got, I wouldn't say he got numb, but basically he built up his tolerance to be able to handle rejection. So on that note, I'm curious, you've had to go through a lot of rejection. What have you learned from it and how do you do that dance? So to go with the metaphor, sometimes I step on some feet during the dance. It's not always graceful. There are bad days. They happen. There are jobs that you really want and you don't get them and it's crushing. Jersey Boys, I auditioned for 10 years and for whatever reasons, I, I, I wasn't cast. I looked too young. I didn't sing the right song. They already had their people. I wasn't old enough or mature enough. Who knows? It's a project. It's a process of remembering that it's not personal, remembering that the casting directors are always on your side. They want you to be the person that makes their job easy. They want you to be the person for the role so that they don't have to see anybody else. At the same time, they're building an entire show. They're not filling just one role. They're putting all the pieces together. So maybe you just didn't fit that puzzle. Doesn't make it any less disappointing. It doesn't make you want that job less. But remembering that takes out some of the bruising to the ego. And like I said, there are good days, there are bad days. There are some days where you'll walk out an audition and, and you won't get the job and you go, okay, you want to go get some dinner? That'll happen too. I think it's about remembering that there's always going to be another audition and that there's always going to be another role. And for a lot of these shows, especially in theater, there's always going to be another production that you can do somewhere. I, I think it's about that perspective and taking the finality out of it. A lot of these shows too on Broadway run for years and years, they're going to need replacements. They're going to always be looking for people. It's easy to shut yourself down. It's easy to say, I didn't get the role. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to do it. And I've done that before. It's easy, but it's not true. 
I love that. And again, I, I really appreciate the candor and I really appreciate that that takes a lot of persistence and a lot of resilience to keep on going at it for Jersey Boys for 10 years. And again, I really encourage people listening. This is certainly entertaining and it's insightful to get a look into the side of a world that maybe we don't have experience with. But I really encourage that these types of challenges are really parallel to challenges that we all have. And so whether it's rejection and trying to reframe, you did a really good reframe. Well, in my clinical world, we would use you know, the terminology of reframing. And if I can, I actually want to share a certain metaphor that I use with people when it comes to that reframing. In essence, what you did, which is awesome, is that if the initial thought was a negative thought about, let's say yourself, let's say you walked out of a rejection, you didn't get cast. And if the initial thought was, what has to do with me? Am I a competent performer, actor, whatever it is, and then really internalizing it, you then went back to the drawing table and said, what do I really have to support that initial thought? Are there other possibilities here? Maybe the role really was looking for this and I just happen not to be that. Does this mean my career is doomed? What's another possibility? Is there going to be more opportunities? And there will be more opportunities. And you did this pivot. And the metaphor that I use for that is, is fairly simple. I think in many cultures, but certainly in Jewish culture, I immediately go to food. And so my metaphor is around food. If you walk into a restaurant and the menu is very scarce and there's very few options, it's going to be a little disappointing because you're not really going to have many options. A lot of us would much prefer having a buffet. So I refer to what you're doing as expanding the menu. I made that up. At the very least, we want to expand the menu. Give ourselves the options of thoughts, options of beliefs. So if you walk out of a rejection, let's say someone applied for a job. Forget about performing arts. You apply for a job, you go to the interview, and you get rejected. So initial thought is, I suck. Or the initial thought is, I'm never going to get a job. And then I'm going to be out of house and home. So that's an option. Let's put that on the buffet. Let's put that on the menu. But let's expand the menu. At the very least, let's, we don't just want the chicken. We want chicken. We want beef. We want potatoes. We want veggies. We want all sorts of options on the buffet. So the other option is that this is not what they're looking for. Another option is that there are plenty of opportunities and maybe the next opportunity is really what's right for me. So many opportunities. And then you look at the buffet and then you decide, what do I want the mashed potatoes? Do I want the green beans? What do I want? So I really like the way you did that. And the other thing that came to mind is that you remind yourself of why you want to do it. Meaning if you can connect, and it sounds like you do that superbly well, remind yourself of what are my values within doing this work. And if I could reconnect with that, then it's less about this particular role, this particular job. It's about the values within it, and I can find those values somewhere else. So I want to segue to something that you said a little bit earlier about some of the characteristics, and you spoke for yourself about feeling feelings strongly. I'm curious. I don't want to be doom and gloom about this and all the challenges and the hardships of doing something. So I want to spend some time on the benefits, and I want to talk about what has this career done for you, not tangibly, like I, I tell people all the time, I didn't necessarily plan on being in the career for mental health, but being in it and in hindsight, I can tell you very confidently that I'm a better person for it because by being in this profession, it's forced me to look at a lot of things. It's forced me to look in the mirror. When someone brings up and shares intense experiences and intense feelings, and as a therapist, therapists are just as human as the next person, although some people for some reason don't think that way. We're just as fallible, just as vulnerable as everyone else. And 
I unequivocally believe that I'm a better person for it because over time I've worked through a lot of stuff because of it. So again, to go back to what you said before about being drawn to it because maybe some people feel feelings intensely. So does being in it then provide this benefit? What has it actually done for you personally? That's a really good question. The shortest answer is a lot. This is both I'll get more to the emotional state of your question, but this is both tangible and intangible. I've gotten to travel a lot because of what I do. I've performed in Japan and South Korea. I did a whole UK tour. I did a month in Canada. But it's cool because you get to experience all these different cultures and it lends perspective. You grow up in this microcosm and you don't think of it that way because we're a large country and each state, if it's not Delaware or New Hampshire, is pretty large. But you don't realize that you're a microcosm of our entire global community. And your perspective changes when you go to different countries and experience different people and, and the way that they they experience life. So that alone has affected me in a very deep way, both philosophically and psychologically. As far as doing what I do, playing a character who rages, getting those feelings out on a stage keeps it out of your normal life. It just happens. Or you got a lot of rage and you should talk to a therapist, although I feel like most people should anyway. Everybody's got stuff that we can't work out. Our brains are too complicated. But it allows you to experience that full spectrum of emotion safely. And the sense of community that you get with your peers, with your company members, whether on stage or if they're down in the pit, if you're doing musical or the technicians or the management, you create a family for yourself. So you've got your biological family, but you also have your chosen family. And some of the people that I've done shows with are my best friends. I still talk to some people who I did shows with when I was nine years old. And I think that's the same for everybody. You go through these life-changing experiences together and you have your rocks. You have your foundation. Whenever anything comes up, you have your people who can just make you whole again. That's really great. That's awesome. So I'm going to tread a little carefully on this because I don't want it to come out wrong or not what I intended. I have a question and then like a comment that I'm curious for you to hear about. The question is, what do you think are some of the stereotypes that someone who's not familiar with the profession, not familiar with that world, that they fall into that you would just wish people with some more education, with some more understanding, wouldn't jump into those stereotypes? And then the thought is, and I'm far from an expert on this, and I know there's actually research on this, which again, I'm not so familiar with. I'm curious your thoughts that there's been like documentation on Imagine a horseshoe and on two ends of the horseshoe, you have creativity and you have madness. And there's been talk throughout history is the line between creativity and unfortunately people struggling with something severe. So I'm curious your thoughts on that. And I'll actually tack on another question to that. If you didn't have enough to think about in one answer is that I'm sure it varies from every single performer. Where does a performer pull their creativity from? I can imagine it could be pulled from a very positive place, and it can also be pulled from maybe a place of pain or unfortunate circumstances, unfortunate experiences, and maybe come out to be something beautiful. So again, question is about stereotypes, thought about the relationship between creativity and madness, and then where do you pull creativity from? I think the most common stereotype about people in the arts that I know of is that we're vapid. There's always that you're just an actor, you should keep your mouth shut. 
I don't think that's right for a lot of reasons. One, because everybody has something of value to add, no matter what you do for a living or who you are. But also a lot of us are actually really well educated and chose a field that's in performing. But I know people who were taking law classes in college while still getting their acting degrees who were pre-med and ended up being an actor. Ken Jeong was a perfect example. He was a doctor and now he's a, like, a comedian and, a, and an actor. For me, that's the biggest stereotype about the performing arts that I wish people would let go of. Yeah, and that's terribly invalidating. It's reductionist. Basically, you shouldn't make any assumptions about anybody. That doesn't mean that someone should be an authority on something just because they're popular. So that would be the flip side of that. But also don't dismiss that they have an educated opinion and a valued opinion or thought on a subject just because they're in a certain profession. I, I try to be very conscious personally of what I know and what I don't know. Even within therapy, even within the mental health world, there are things that I have more experience in and I know more of and I know the research of and there are things that I don't. So I try to be very conscious of that, but that's, I'm sorry. Oh no, it's all right. People do it to athletes too. And even musicians, I've been talking about artists, but you see it with athletes, these guys who have brilliant minds and a brilliant education but are told to just shut up and catch a ball. So it's not necessarily unique to the arts, but you're right. Like you only know what you know and what you don't know. You don't know what other people know and you don't know what they have to say. And I think there's value in what everyone has to say. Yeah, I, I think that's the biggest stereotype that bothers me that I wish people would let go of. The second question, creativity and madness. You're right, there is a very fine line. And I think there's a little madness in creativity, although there's probably a little madness in all of us anyway. There's a little bit of that chaos. I don't know, maybe it is a little crazy that we make a living being as vulnerable as we are. My, my living is made from bearing my raw emotions on a stage every night. That's a little crazy, that's a little mad. I think part of why so many artists famously have had issues is because of that vulnerability, that openness, that inability to separate the emotions so that it doesn't take you over. And some of us are drawn to the arts because it's the only way that we can express them. You think about Kurt Cobain, who was amazing and unfortunately due to his depression, it led him to suicide. You look at Nick Drake, who when you listen to his music in hindsight, if you haven't listened to Pink Moon, it's gorgeous and you can hear the pain in his soul. So for some of us, it's that it's the only way for these feelings to express themselves. I think it also comes down to the way you see the world. I've often talked about my, my own form of depression, and I'm using that word very generally, not to a specific diagnosis. My particular form is at its worst when I start processing the state of the world and, and what other people are going through. That is what brings about my own internal pain and my own struggle is trying to process that. And I think that's why creativity and madness are so often linked or two sides of that horseshoe is because we are processing the colors of the world and all of the emotions of the universe. That sounds really heady and self-important. I don't mean it that way, but we're observing and we're processing and we're trying to translate and make it make sense. And I think for that reason, those two are interconnected because it's a lot to process. I had a teacher who really fully believes that all actors should be in therapy. And I can't say I disagree because it's too much to process alone. For some people, you can process it through your friends and, and your peers and you can talk it all out and you can sit up until five in the morning on a phone or drinking coffee or these days on Zoom and you can talk it all out. But we all, we need help. We all need help processing the complex, the complex nature 
of the world and, and humanity. I think that was really uh, poignant. And I think it's, and this is true in many contexts, is the same thing that makes you really good at what you do makes you vulnerable for these things as well. Performers, actors, creators tend to feel things strongly, which makes them really good at what they do. And they somehow have this ability, as scary as it is to the rest of us, and maybe to them too, is to be vulnerable out in front, exposed to other people. So for the performance, amazing. It makes it real. It makes it powerful. It makes it meaningful. And then at the same time, that opens them up for those struggles as well. So what makes them really good also opens them up to it. And how do we compartmentalize it? And if I feel feelings very strongly and I am a good observer, so then when I'm exposed to the world and the many challenges and problems there are in the world, it could be overload. This may sound a little callous. I've worked with people on, you need to create a diet on what you're exposed to not because you don't care, but there is an endless amount of good causes out there. And again, it may sound like I'm the Tin Man here, but you cannot solve all the problems. You cannot make everything out there your mission. You cannot take on everything. Again, I'm going to tread carefully, is that some people feel pressured into, you don't care about this, and you don't care about this, and you don't care about that. It doesn't mean that a person doesn't care if they accept that there is an endless amount of causes and unfortunate problems and tragedies and things that are unfair. But if you try to take on everything, not only will you burn to the ground, but you actually won't be effective at helping any of those causes. So to me, that's what it speaks to is the strength that you have of being able to feel and being able to observe and see and connect and be empathic, we have to try to create that balance. And to try to make this very real for people, as far as using what you just said, translated into real life, you're saying how, well, why some of these people who are in this world have certain struggles or they have maybe have a hard time shutting it off. I think it's very real for people in quote unquote mundane life is that we all have different roles that we play, to be metaphoric here. We all have different roles. We all have different hats. And I can speak for myself. There were plenty of times in my life where I held two, maybe three jobs, aside from having a family and all those responsibilities. And I noticed that I had a very hard time when there were certain transitions. Let's say even in the middle of a day, wearing one hat, then automatically switch that I have another role. So take someone who's just a teacher and then they come home. They're not a teacher anymore. They're a mom, they're a dad, they're a husband, they're whoever they are. And they have to be very conscious of even maybe stopping before they come home of being able to change roles. Someone who's a litigator, you best not be a litigator at home, my friend. <laughs> that is not going to end well. You don't have a jury of your peers at home to decide that you have a good argument. It's just not going to work. So take really anything. We have a certain role, a certain hat in some area, and it takes work, it takes practice. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not like brushing it over. I'm not minimizing the challenge of it is that if we have a hard time compartmentalizing and, and helping ourselves transition from role to role, then things are gonna bleed over and it's gonna make it very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, everybody. Hi, this is Shmuel. Like we said in the introduction, in order to make it a little bit easier for people, we are splitting this into two episodes. And so you can take a break, stretch your legs, and then 
come right back because there is a lot more interesting stuff that Evan has to share. I hope you're enjoying and hope to see you again soon. Have a great day.